This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. Good morning, you're listening to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. As an aging nation, Malaysia is becoming old before it becomes rich. And the reality is mirrored at the individual level, where it's estimated by the Employees Provident Fund, or EPF, that only 4% of Malaysians can afford to retire. How should we revamp the national retirement saving system to provide a better umbrella for old age? Joining me to discuss this, as well as global investment trends, is Dr. Joseph Sherian, a practice professor of finance with the Asia School of Business. He's also the author of a recently published compilation of essays, Track to the Future, Investment, Finance and Lessons for the New Economy. Joe, good morning. Welcome to The Breakfast Grill. Good morning, Shazana. Thank you for having me. Now, I'd like to tap into your expertise on retirement finance because this is a field that you have long uh, been working in. If we look at Malaysia, we have a two-tiered public retirement system. We have a defined benefits pension scheme for civil servants, as well as a defined contribution retirement scheme under EPF covering private sector employees. Now, from your perspective, how fit for purpose is the current system in light of what we know to be an aging population. You're right that we have two systems in place. Um, Let me give you a little bit of background. Defined benefit programs around the world are sort of dying off because they're not sustainable unless it's a government that can either print money, uh, borrow, or raise, raise taxes to finance it. So in the U.S., you'll see a lot of defined benefit programs being converted to defined contribution programs. That's what's happening in the U.S. Uh, in Malaysia, I know we have the co-op system that covers uh, pensions uh, of uh, civil servants, but more importantly, the EPF, which is a defined contribution plan, covers everyone else. Um, let me at the outset say that the EPF and to... Um, our corresponding CPF partner in Singapore are two very well-managed programs. Mm. Let's get that straight. Um, What's the problem is, as we know, the savings are not adequate to meet our retirement needs. And on top of that, you have this aging population that means that they have less of a runway to get to save enough. So we have a problem. A second problem we had was uh, Malaysia allowed large withdrawals Uh, during the pandemic. It was a time of exigency. A few countries allowed it, not just Malaysia, Australia did, the US did, India as well. But my view is that the retirement savings spot is a long-term savings spot. It's meant for retirement. When you need uh, uh, money for exigencies, like what Singapore and Hong Kong did, the state steps in and provides that. You shouldn't dig into your pot because Mm. this is now the problem. Even more people, if you look at the EPF study, more people are falling below the threshold in terms of adequate savings, partly because the ones who need it most withdrew the most through the retirement. I'm not criticizing it because the US, the academics who say it's their money, they're allowed to use it. Mm. I just feel that when we have saved it for retirement for that purpose, it should be kept for retirement and there should be other means by which we meet our exigencies and pandemic. So two things good system, but maybe we need to fix a few things along the way or find remedies. So one of the things that you advocate for is a self-funded, government-guaranteed public pension or social security savings fund. Is this equivalent to expanding the current EPF to everyone? Well, to a certain extent, EPF satisfies those conditions, right? It's self-funded, 
with the employer contribution. And sometimes the government tops up, both governments, Singapore, Malaysia, they have even recently the government mentioned there'll be some top-ups for the lower income. Singapore does that all the time to the CPF. The government tops up. But mainly it's your money and the employer doing some matching and it's on a tax-deferred basis. That's all the good part. And the guarantee part, both Singapore and Malaysia have legislated minimum returns. It's about 2.5% in both countries, if not mistaken. Mm. Singapore has got a savings rate. That means you put it into account. It's like a savings account with the 2.5% guarantee that can go up as high as 6% for different tiers. It's not for the whole amount. Mm. Malaysia is even better. It's on your entire accumulated sum, not just on staggered amounts. You know, Singapore has this tiered system. Mm. So in a way, we have it good. It's a pretty good return on your retirement savings. So my view is that we have a pretty robust system. How solve do we improve the depleted. that? How we do right. solve that? So the ones who are most affected, it's not the T20, the T10 and all that who need help, right? Mm. We're talking about the B40, maybe even the middle income. Many of them have not enough savings. First of all, you have to increase your savings. But what if you have such a short runway and you have a longer lifespan mm. because of the fact that people are living longer mm. and the demographics are not in our favour? You need help. What we call in economics and finance, exogenous help. And that exogenous, that means external help, has to come from the government. So I think this proposal has been going around amongst various experts in Malaysia, it's not just me, mm. that we need a needs-based pension scheme for that group of people. A needs-based pension scheme means some kind of basic wage income, whatever the amount is, to survive. 2,000, 3,000 ringgit for those who have just don't have enough and will never be able to make it. And that's why I call it needs-based. It's not given to everyone. Uh, so we need some kind of defined benefit program for those who just, you know, you can't leave them in a lurch because it's not, maybe it's not their fault. Secondly, in any country, when people don't have enough to survive in retirement, it can lead to social unrest. We see that in Europe. Mm. We see that sometimes in America. So we don't want that to happen. So we have to make sure we take care of the people who need it the most. So, so this is the response to those retirees who are facing the problem today, right? Either the, the retirees today or the soon-to-be retirees that are coming up. This needs-based pension scheme. How would this look like? Well, you need to have a, agree on a basic wage, whatever is a reasonable wage, maybe per capita income or maybe the 40th household income level, whatever it is. There has to be someone who is to work out the mathematics of how much is needed to survive. Basic. It's not for leisure. It's not for travel. It's for your basic needs, which means your staples, daily consumption needs and healthcare maybe. But fact is you must guarantee that until they pass away, they have got a basic consumption met and healthcare needs met. So we have to reverse engineer and find out how much does it cost to provide that okay. and then come up with the scheme and say, who are the people who need it? B40, B30, B50, whatever the level is, it's a policy decision. You need experts to get together. In my, What I've suggested in one of my writings is form an advisory panel that comprises of government experts, academic experts, industry experts, and the EPF. And then decide... What is the reasonable and how much is it going to cost? There's one estimate by one academic here in Malaysia uh, that to meet the B70 group in terms of basic wage income, that means they need, uh, they're already going to retirement like next year, this group of people, to provide them with 2,700 in basic income, it'll cost the government 40 billion ringgit a year. That's a lot of money. That Where is, is that going to come from? That was How my do you next finance question, that? yeah. So we have to calibrate. 
We can't give everyone this, right? What can we afford and who's going to get it the most? So that's the study that we need to do properly, scientific studies. And we need a panel of experts comprising public sector, private sector, academy, to come together and say, this is what we do, and then they have to implement it. But how will this be funded, Joe? Is this coming from taxpayer uh, taxpayer? Many money? ways. So most social security savings systems are funded either, if it's not self-funded, I'm talking about pensions, right? Uh, that means defined benefit types. Uh, government level, national, uh, you can issue debt, which is not a good thing, I know, but you can either issue debt, you can raise taxes. You can use like what Norway does. They have a petroleum fund. Norges Bank, NBIM, has over a trillion dollars in assets that are set aside from royalty and profits from their oil, uh, Nazi oil. Mm. They put it into this fund to meet future social security needs. That's what basic income everyone gets. So we have also natural resources. You know, we have to come up with some kind of separate fund, I think, that serves this needy people, the needs-based pension program. Um, maybe financed through an oil fund or some other way. So there are many ways. All right. So yeah. in that sense, it's going to require some innovative thinking. But then to my mind, this isn't something that's going to come in the immediate future. This is something for much further down the line in terms of having this needs-based uh, wage pension. Yeah, it will take a bit of time, but time is not on our side. Just to give you experience, uh, it took us two years to come up with all the recommendations to improve the CPF system. And then it took legislation to implement them. It's not going to happen overnight, but mm. we need to start soon. Um, so my suggestion is we start thinking about this fast. Can I ask in terms of EPF, at the moment covers only a fraction of the working population. I think the there's a, the vast majority of uh, workers that actually don't give any contributions to EPF. Um, they're not covered by this safety net. Do you have any thoughts on what we need to do differently to encourage more buy-in into this defined contribution scheme that, as you say, is very well managed, it's yeah. backed by the government, but yet still not enough people are uh, saving in it? Yeah, this is a perennial problem in many countries, including Singapore. How do you include the gig workers and the grab drivers and all that who are not covered um, by this? In some countries like Singapore, they're actually legislating that there must be some amount contribution from the employer and employee. Uh, for this economy, uh, folks as well, uh, we have to make sure the SMEs are covered. You know, SMEs are also covering their employees. But, you know, it's affordability issue. Can I afford to contribute given I'm barely making ends meet? The SME owner, can they afford to match? So what we need to do is have a benevolent system that allows these people to contribute and their employers to match it, but with some help from the government initially, right? That means you can have a formula where you say, you put a buck, uh, the employer puts a buck, I'll put $2, just for the first few years to get it started, you know, to seed it, something like that. And uh, you may get a double tax benefit. That means if you put a buck, you'll get $2 worth of tax mm. benefits, things like that, you know? When I give in America a tax deductible, $1 to charity is $1 tax deduction from my income as an expense. In Singapore, it's two and a half times. To encourage giving to the poor, to other charitable causes, they give you two and a half times. So every dollar a Singaporean or anyone who a PR donates to a cause in Singapore, you get two and a half times tax deduction. That's like an incentive. Why not do it for retirement plans? So what I'm saying, uh, Shazana, is we have to be creative mm -hmm. uh, and it has to be affordable. We can't throw just pots of money at it. We have to make the trade-off analysis, do the trade-off analysis and see what's affordable and make it 
incentive compatible for the lower income to also contribute at least a little bit, you know, uh, to a program, especially when they're young. We should start young. Don't wait till you're 55 or 65. You need to start young. You should think about retirement savings from a very young age. I wonder if it all boils down to the structural issue that wages just aren't big enough to be incentivized by these types of nudges. Yeah, you talk about tax uh, benefits. The thing is, a large portion of the society doesn't get income taxed. So in that sense, that nudge isn't going to work. Does it all come down to making sure that the economy grows, that wages grow, and then only will all these systems actually start to fall into place? That's a very good point. So we do have a problem. There's a large segment of our population which is just stuck with stagnant wages and so on, and they're not paying taxes, which means they are not even going to benefit from a retirement tax advantage program. Um, Again, I feel in those circumstances, we need to find how the government can plug the gap. Um, I'm not saying it's the government's responsibility to plug everyone's gap, but retirement is a problem that will end up on the government's and our shoulders if we don't tackle it early enough. Um, it's becoming an issue in many countries, in Japan, in Korea, because of the demographic problem. I think Singapore has to a certain extent helped. It was a problem uh, 10 years ago, but they've slowly fixed it, which means it can be done. Mm. There's another method. Again, you might say they don't own homes. You can do what's called a reverse mortgage. Chagamas now allows you to get affordable reverse mortgage. If you own a house, you can sell the equity you have in the house to Chagamas and get an income stream uh, for retirement for that purpose. In Singapore, they have a reverse mortgage program as well. They call it the CPF lease buyback scheme. If you participate in the program, 90% of your retirement income problems go away. People don't realise they're sitting on a pot of gold, their apartments or their houses in Singapore. 80% of Singaporeans own the home. I think the figure in Malaysia is about... It's pretty high too. So can we use our homes as an asset to monetize to help pay for our retirement? So we have to be creative. I'm speaking to Dr. Joseph Sherian, Practice Professor of Finance with the Asia School of Business. When we come back, how do global economic conditions impact our retirement funds? Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. Thanks for staying tuned to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mokhtar and with me on the show today is Dr. Joseph Sherian, Practice Professor of Finance with the Asia School of Business. We're discussing a variety of themes from his latest book of essays, Track to the Future, Investment, Finance and Lessons for the New Economy. Now, earlier we were discussing the structure of the retirement system and ways that we can future-proof it. I'd like to turn to the other factors in the global economy that can affect the retirement investment pot. Looking at this post-pandemic period with its persistent inflation trend, and that pretty much ended the era of cheap money as central banks hiked interest rates at a rapid race. We're also seeing uh, record high bond yields in U.S. treasuries. How are all these factors affecting the returns of pension funds? And what are the risks that fund managers are having to navigate and making sure that uh, they're still making money, essentially? OK, so we are in a very unique situation right now. First, we had the pandemic that created supply chain disruptions that fed into inflation. And then on top of that, Man created geopolitical tensions between U.S. and China, uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, now we have the Middle East situation. So unfortunately, as a consequence, inflation has crept up and the governments around the world, as a result of that, they're already heavily indebted because they all borrowed like crazy to finance the pandemic and all the transfers and handouts, right? So they can't just keep issuing debt. It's a pretty bad situation, the private sector as well as the public sector on the debt side. So... 
the way around this is to increase interest rates to control inflation. Now, given inflation has crept up and interest has gone up, that as a result means prices of bonds have dropped. So whoever uses bonds as collateral will suddenly see the value of the bonds going down. But there's another flip side to it. If you invest in floating rate bonds or inflation index bonds, we don't have them in Malaysia, but many other countries in the US have it. If you invest in inflation index treasury bonds, they're called TIPS in America. UK has it. Uh, Japan has different forms of it. The interest rate goes up with the rate of inflation. To me, that's called hedging. Mm. But you just said that these types of bonds aren't available in Malaysia. So They're what not. is the alternative for those who are not as exposed to okay. those foreign markets? For the safety net for Malaysians who may not be able to buy into these bonds through their brokers or whatever, we have an incredible sukuk market. So the best, second best solution is buying some kind of sukuk-type bond, um, which Malaysia has got a lot of. I mean, I'm talking about government-type uh, mm. sukuk and so on. They issue um, uh, Islamic bonds through your broker, whatever, the, whichever way you can do it. So that's one second-best solution because we don't have inflation index bonds here. Um, but that said, I did in my writings, if you remember, uh, from one of the chapters, uh, I did encourage both the Singapore government and Malaysian government to think about offering inflation index bonds mm. because so that when inflation goes up, at least people, the ordinary citizens have a hedge against it. Why don't governments do that, Joe? Well, because partly they say we can't control inflation. Mm. Like in Singapore's case, they say 80% of our goods are imported. We can't control that. So we play with the exchange rate to keep our exchange rate strong so that we do not have to pay exorbitant prices for imported goods. Mm. But we can't really control that. If the whole world is refusing to let us have certain agriculture products or chickens or, mm. or, or uh, pandemic uh, healthcare uh, products, we're going to suffer, right? So they don't want to give this guarantee with unlimited liability. So what incentive does the government have then to issue these type of inflation indexed bonds? I still think, well, sometimes governments say the private sector should offer it. But the private sector does not have the capacity to hedge inflation. The only entity in any part of the world that has this capacity to hedge inflation is the government. That's why I say it should be the first best provider of inflation index bonds. It can raise taxes. It can control prices, like what we do sometimes, control the price of chicken. You know, we can have many mechanisms that the private sector doesn't have. So it may, it may be an expensive proposition, but it's best for uh, the government to offer it. Actually, it's also a good disciplinary mechanism. When a government, and this has happened around the world, when inflation is out of control, when they, when they started issuing inflation index bonds to help their citizenry hedge against inflation, it turned out the governments became better at managing inflation because now their costs went up if inflation went up. They were incentivized to keep inflation down and do everything possible. There are many instances in history mm. where inflation index bonds caused inflation to actually come down because the governments became better at managing inflation. So it can work both ways. Uh, I do think we cannot leave this to the private sector. It should be the government's responsibility to issue inflation index bonds. But Malaysia is not unique in saying we're not ready for it. Mm. Uh, many other countries said we don't want to have that kind of exposure. Let's end on the point of infrastructure finance, um, which is also an area that you look at, Joe. And we see that the world is looking to pivot to renewable energy and green infrastructure in a bid to avert climate change disaster. And this is going to require massive mm. amounts of investment and big ticket projects. But green projects 
projects are relatively new. So do you see this posing challenges for financing as we try to understand how to calculate the returns? What are the trends that you see when it comes to infrastructure financing for green projects? Okay, so let me separate it out to infrastructure financing and green infrastructure, a net zero, okay? 12, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, the World Economic Forum, McKinsey, were talking about how we needed infrastructure. Ports, uh, roads, waterways, roads, trains, trains um, irrigation systems, the world needed it. Africa, Southeast Asia, many countries needed it. Studies from the World Economic Forum and McKinsey showed you need about 4.2 trillion, if I'm not mistaken, about 4.2 trillion US dollars per year globally to get to where we need to be. 10 years or 12 years have passed on since that. Uh, study was done, we've only achieved 10% of that mandated infrastructure spend. Mm. But it has pivoted. It's now become more green. So now what we're saying is governments, pension funds, asset owners, those who are investors are saying, look, I'm not going to put money into infrastructure unless it's sustainably built. It considers the environment. It looks at ESG principles and all that. So they call that green infrastructure. And then we have got net zero. We have to hit net zero by 2050. So a new estimate came up saying to hit net zero in 2050, all our infrastructure spend and all our activities, land use and all the other things that contribute to that will cost us nine plus trillion dollars, 9.3 trillion. It's about more than double. We've not even achieved 10% (laughs) of the 10-year-ago mandate. 27 years, we have to spend 9.3 trillion per annum. That's about... I forget, 4% of global GDP. That's about half of all corporate profits globally. That means all the companies together, you calculate how much profits make, 9.3 trillion is half of that corporate profits. Unfathomable in other words. Unfathomable at all. But it can be done if we are creative in our financing. We have to figure out how to fund these things. We need to be creative in how we finance it. There's lots of capital out there. Pension funds, private-public partnerships, um, uh, capital markets, Sukuk, Huge potential. We've got so many people who are interested in Suku. We need to put all the financing mechanisms, not just one, all the various financing mechanisms together have a a will to be able to say, we are going to achieve this by 2050. So what's going to get people to finance it then? You mentioned that we have a lot of sources of funding, but they're not putting the money where their mouth is. Well, some pensions are coming, but it's not enough. We need a coordinating mechanism. I look at the COP events and all that. It's all great. People coming together, they put out all these risks. But we need implementers to do this stuff. So we need asset owners. That's the sovereign funds, the pensions, the endowments. We need asset managers. We need governments to all come together and say, here's how we're going to solve it and then get with the program. Is it down to the fact that so much of the technology is still untested, that investors just aren't convinced that they're going to get the returns that they want from investing in these types of big ticket projects? Well, the problem is our traditional methods of valuing assets looks at profits. You don't look at cost as much. You know, there's something called negative externality. Sure, you can make profits by tearing the forest down and putting a big building and economic activity increases. But if that increases your carbon emissions, there's a cost there. If that creates haze, there's a cost. You need to factor that in too. So if you do the math, suddenly all these projects become bankable. Suddenly it says, hey, if I use a different metric to measure what returns are, this makes sense. The traditional capital budgeting methods that our finance professionals use cannot be used in this modern context, especially with the net zero hanging over our heads in 2050. We need to think about how we also cost out those 
factors like haze, um, uh, carbon emissions, uh, um, our environment being destroyed. For future generations, we need to put that into the equation as well. And I don't think we do as good a job. All of a sudden, if you do that right, projects become bankable. That means it's makes, it gives you the right return. Joe, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I've been speaking to Dr. Joseph Sherian, Practice Professor of Finance with the Asia School of Business. This has been The Breakfast Grill on BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.